Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled that my guest today is Wyatt Snack. Uh, it's, it's rare, Wyatt, that I have a guest on here I've never even met or spoken to. It almost never happens um, because we, I, at, like you, like I've been at this for so long that I just, you know, in all the areas like you, um, I have a catholicity of interest. And so I end up in uh, working in all these different areas. And so I usually meet people, but I feel like I've known you, man, because I've, I've just admired your work for such um, a long time. And I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to talk. Today. Oh, no, thank you. Thanks for reaching out. And thank you for those nice words. I, I feel like I... It's funny because, yeah, you work long enough in this industry, you figure you'll cross paths or you can six degrees of Kevin Bacon yourself to somebody. And I I know for me personally, I feel like I'm not as social as I probably should be. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's a weird, uh, as you just said before we started, like you've taken the pandemic very seriously yeah uh, i was taking it seriously before it was a pandemic <laughs> yeah just when cold season came around you locked you yeah. locked yourself away yeah it dips down to 68 oh i'm not going anywhere i mean honestly there's as i get older the more i really understand that sort of uh, philosophy well but it's weird in our in our business like when you make stuff you do end up getting kind of thrown together socially with these groups of people and then so sometimes then you'll be in another, you know, you'll shoot something in Toronto and then you could be in New York and there's someone from there. Then he's friends with someone or she is. And then suddenly you're having coffee and, you know, these other groups of people because we kind of like crash into each other and then and then depart. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I feel like especially in New York, that's one of the things that I was always a little bit a little bit confounded that it didn't seem like it happened more and maybe it does. And I'm just quarantining all the time and not seeing it. But I always felt like, Oh, in LA, there's so much stuff going on. And in New York, there's way less stuff happening. I assume there's way more cross pollination. And sometimes I'll see it where I'll walk around my neighborhood and I'll see someone who was like a gaffer on a, thing I shot like seven years ago and yes. they're like hanging outside of a bookstore and they're like, Oh yeah, we're shooting season two of love life. And it's like, Oh cool. And then I just go about my business, but I do feel like, Oh, it's surprising. There's not like a monthly meeting where all the New York <laughs> people kind of come together and they're just like, all right, what are we all doing? Everybody good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, you know, like, cause yeah, there is not a Largo in New York, right? At, like where you got a scene like that, where those people kind of do show up and yeah. check in and you have like this, you know, it could be Paul Thomas Anderson coming in with Amy Mann and then, you know, uh, whoever the other crew crew of people are and they are all interconnected though. But I wonder, it does seem to me like the comics that I'm close with are, if they're really on that routine of doing the seller, it does seem like the seller functions that way for for, for people, but do you, do you not work the seller much or did you not at any point along the way? I never worked the seller that often. I, when I first moved to New York, I went to the seller and went through the audition process and was passed and was able to put in my avails. And I started doing sets, but at the time I was working and I couldn't always do sets. Yeah. And it would be this thing of, oh, we'll give you a set at 1 a.m. on a Tuesday. And I was working full time at the Daily Show where I was coming in. I was coming in the office every day at nine. And then I wasn't leaving until six or seven if I was on the show that night. And so because of that, I was just like, oh, I like this 1 a.m. or, you know, 2 a.m. kind of thing. I can't do that in the middle of the week. And so I at some point, I think I just stopped, I stopped going as much. And then when I had more free time, it was like, oh, well, we haven't heard from you in forever. <laughs> and so then it was kind of like, yeah, well, all right. It's, you know, I, I'm, I may be not, uh, 
I, I could, I guess, find my way and gratiate myself back in. But I mean, I it would not was... be hard for you if it was something that you wanted to go and sit at that table and talk to everybody. I, I've at various times in my life, I've, I never performed there, I'm not a stand up, but I did for a period of time, I did stand up. And so some of the people that I did stand up with then have now become big comedians. And I'll go hang out. And uh, it is still a fascinating cross-section of really smart people with like wildly divergent politics. I mean, you can really find yourself surprised and engaged in a really intense way, but it's still, they're also, everyone there is so smart and so interesting, I think. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny though, cause I feel like I also never really, I would hang out at clubs when I was going up more, I would, I would hang out, but more often than not, I always found myself in the showroom because I was always curious what was happening before my set. Yes. And so I would watch like there, I would go do like, I didn't do the salary that much, but I would go do the stand a lot. And yes. anytime I had sets at the stand, if I was on the eight o'clock and the 10 o'clock, I would go in at the eight o'clock. I'd watch the opener. Or I'd, I'm, I'd watch the host. I'd watch everyone who went on before me if only to just get the temperature of the room and to know what is happening. And so I, and because of that, I wasn't upstairs hanging out in the bar as much. It was like, oh no, I'm standing here next to the servers uh, right by their register watching and just trying to see like, oh, okay, this person has made fun of this father and daughter in the front row. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, all right. And now the second comic is making fun of them and doesn't realize that the host already did it. And this is now sucking the energy out of the room. This, this, uh, that's brilliant. And this is great. I, this is great. I feel like I've just done what you're talking about because I, you just led me into the first question that I had written down. And what I had written down was this, that I've long been a fan of how you think your way through the world. And when did you notice that you deconstruct the experience of living as you do it? It's literally the first question written down <laughs> was just from watching you, like just this idea that you're clearly someone who as a, you're really a writer. It seems to me you really live as a writer and you're a performer, a great performer, but you're a writer and like writers often deconstruct the world as they're living it. And, they, uh, but there's this weird thing when you notice, I think most of us notice oh, I'm in the experience and I'm outside of it at the same time. And it makes me unable to really live it as completely as these other people sometimes. And so I'm wondering, like, when did you start to notice that about yourself? Hmm. As you, as you were saying that, the first thing that came to mind for me was that when I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect. Among many things, I wanted to be a cat burglar as well. So um but i wanted nobody to be... listening knows what a cat burglar is but yeah way. no they're it's... not if they're if they're like under 40 they <laughs> don't know what that expression yeah. means it does not mean he wanted to steal just to let people know it didn't mean he wanted to steal kittens no i mean unless they were worth a lot of money sure then, yes yeah yeah some onyx an onyx kitten yeah that you'd want like a, you know what i mean like a yeah. native onyx that we'd steal no so you, you wanted to be an architect when I was I when I was young, I wanted to be an architect because I was fascinated with how things were built. And I think the aspect of wanting to be an architect that I appreciated was like how things are built. What I didn't appreciate was all the math. And so I <laughs> I kind of quickly like pulled out of architect, but I was always still really fascinated with how is this structure created? And I think not just a physical structure, then that sort of opens up when you start to look at the world in like, oh, what are all the bricks that make this uh, stand? I, I think that then kind of like, I, I turn that interest outward to everything that I saw that was like, okay. I like when I wanted to learn how to write television, it was, all right, I'm going to watch 
as many episodes of one television show as I can and try to understand what are the patterns, what are the what are the things that are happening that I can kind of piece together. Then I'll try to build it. I'll see if I'm right. And then if I'm wrong, I'll learn where I'm wrong. And even today, I feel like I'm always really fascinated with like television shows when they end. And I will watch like if I know a show is it's like, oh, this is the series finale of some show. Even if I've never watched the show, I will watch like the like I'll just get into like, okay, I want to see how you stick this landing. And maybe I'll go back and I'll watch like your first episode and like catch up online on what's going on. But I it's that 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 construction. That's just how your mind works. And it seems, by the way, you just gave me such chills because like at some point my partner and I are going to have to figure out how to end billions. And like, it worries me. I've, you know, we think about it a lot. Like we yeah. had ideas along the way of how we were going to end the show at some point, but like not disappointing people who've been along for this ride. Like we're starting season seven now. And like, you know, whenever we get to that point that we're going to decide we've, we've told it, God, what a nightmare. And I don't think I'll do the thing you're talking. In fact, I know I won't. I think if I start watching, I hope I've incorporated all those lessons organically by now. Right. And that I'm so in tune with the characters as they live uh, um, up here and the actors have made, made them come to life that like it'll, cause it is, it's so, oh, it's fascinating. Like what you're talking about, because of course, you want it to feel organic, but as a writer, you know, uh, even if we say, when we say the characters took it away, like you're still crafting something. Yeah. Well, and it's, and I think there's something that you said that was so fascinating, which was that idea of not wanting to let fans down. And what's fascinating to me about that is when you started the show, you started the show because it was your idea it wasn't it wasn't this thing that then had a bunch of other passengers on for the journey and now those those passengers have voices and it becomes this weird this weird delicate balance of like how do i honor the story that we started yes with a with an audience that now feels an ownership over it too and they want to be serviced as well. And even though it's not really like, like it's it's a strange thing because it's like you they're not in the room. So no, and I won't pan. I mean, Dave and I, we won't. I'll say like um, I've made a lot of choices we have over the course of of making the show. I mean, all the stuff over all the years, as and I, as I said, you have where where what you have to do when you say that what you're really talking about is like not what I'm really talking about is like not letting down the fan in me. Cause that's the only way I know, like, basically I realized a long time ago, the only North star that you can have telling these stories, I think is your own sense of what excites you about the material. Yeah. And so I know I'm going to make whatever choice I want for it to end a certain way. Then I just hope disconnected from that, <laughs> that it'll land. Okay. With those people, because I don't want them to feel fucked over for their investment, but I, I can't, to your point, I can't try to please them because you know what will happen? That's the word. Then I'll definitely fuck it up. Right. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And I think ultimately, ultimately, I think if it, it, the thing that I feel like I've learned watching a bunch of different shows and, and even when I think about what people will say is like, oh, this was a great series finale, it feels like the main thing is as long as the show creators feel confident and good about it, then that's really that like the audience, the audience it's, it is similar to, it is similar to stand up in, in the way that like the audience does want to see you succeed. They do want you to yes. win. And so in that same way that like, if you're on stage as a comic performing, the audience wants you to win. They, I think the same for a show creator. If there's, if there's a little bit of doubt that you're like, 
oh well yeah i, I see what people are saying yeah we fucked up that's all the opening that, that is like a brilliant insight man because that is so the thing about stand-up like the it the deep confidence is the difference all the time right in yeah. whether it's gonna work or not uh you could say the same material three nights in a row and if you feel funky one night it's just not gonna get it, go over and the night that you somehow just feel like your feet are planted in the right way it's gonna kill yeah and it, and it seems like that's always the thing is that that confidence i think about you know people always talk about the end of new heart and as like the greatest ending of a tv series ever and I think part of what makes it so successful was that they were confident in the joke. Like they, the audaciousness, the audaciousness of when he were the audaciousness of rolling over, like the audaciousness of that moment. hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. Yes. If, if they tiptoed into that or if they like hedged, it would, we'd say what a stupid ending to a show that you're going to call back to your earlier previous sitcom. Like, what a weird no. But like this, it was like, oh, no, you all, you know, it goes to that. Like there's that uh, I can't quote a lot of things, but there's uh, that line from Seinfeld where George Costanza says, uh, it's not a lie if you believe it. That's and great. I think there is something that like, yeah, if you believe it and if you believe in this idea. We can debate the how you so shot it, but like. Yeah, you you believe in what you what you did. And I got I I have to appreciate that you believe it. I think we have to do a whole campaign that Trump is Costanza if he gets the nomination. <laughs> like we have to just put posters up, like just get posters like in some sort of a postmodern style of like, you know, the two guys and just the quotes from George and put them over Trump's head because they're very similar. They, they are. I mean, that's yeah, it's 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 such a there's a part of me that's like I always wonder what would happen if you were to take some of the things that Donald Trump said and just like just have someone else say them like I, I for a long time I'd had this I'd had this thought. I remember when like uh, Glenn Beck at the height of his powers on Fox News was saying like really incendiary things and no one in his audience saw it as like, you know, he's, he's saying like, you know, this country's screwed and like yeah. th all this stuff. And there was a part of me that I remember, I remember pitching this at the, at the time I was at the daily show. And I remember pitching this where I was, I was like, you know, what would be great is if we could go and find some like just a just a black church somewhere and if we could convince like this a black pastor at a baptist church somewhere and his congregation to all just be in on this and we're just going to take glenn beck's actual words and put them in a sermon and then have this guy say it and like we'll you know film it and just kind of like let it find its way to the, you know, the Fox News is in the bright parts of the world that like, oh, my God, here's this Jeremiah Wright like figure who's saying, you know, oh, damn, this country. And it's like and then let them sort of gin themselves up and then have that person be like, oh, no, I was only I was only saying this. Uh, this is the script. Yeah, this yeah, is the script. Yeah. I was just repeating what this guy said. Oh, it's what makes it bad. And and that was something that I, I yeah, it's always it's brilliant. And it's something that guys like us would like completely think would work and they would just use it completely for their own devices. They would never report where it really, you know what I mean? It's yeah. perfect. Even here, you hear you talk about the way all this stuff works. Like, it seems to me you're a real student of group dynamics. And I noticed this watching. So I loved Problem Areas. Uh, it's a brilliant show. This was a show you had for two seasons on HBO. And I have, uh, there's a bunch of stuff about that. One thing is it, 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 it did seem to me, it does seem to me, and knowing your work really well from The Daily Show too, 
that group dynamics kind of fascinated you. And, uh, and I wonder if that ties into this sense when writers are kids of sort of being in the group, but also a little bit outside of it. So they have to pay attention to group dynamics. Do you think that, did you start noticing that stuff as a young person or did you start noticing that stuff uh, as a professional? I think when I was young, I definitely paid attention to the sort of the energy of spaces. And I, I don't, I don't mean that in like a woo woo way, but more. No, I know just, exactly what you mean. Yeah. But just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That person's mad. And like, and I think I very, I very early on could kind of like, I knew when like, I knew when my family was upset with me. And so that I think really kind of like keyed in, in this way of, okay, pay attention to, the the room and look at someone's eyes and like are they getting glassy like is that person about to cry like is that like is that person really happy or and so I think there's I feel like a little bit of that as a kid and then when I started when I started performing I think that's when it really kind of it, it really was something that I tried to focus in on because it is that instant feedback and there is, you, you notice a room and you notice the way that a room collectively responds to things, but also you see the things in a room that are like, you know, you look in the front row and if there's someone with their arms crossed off or closed off, it's an interesting thing of like, oh, and then if I start to stare at that person, more often than not, what happens is they uncross their arms and they'll uncross their legs. Like sometimes you'll ah. see a person, it's like both arms and legs crossed. And they're just like, oh, but now that I'm looking at you, you now are drawn in in this way. And that that idea of like eye contact and connecting with people, especially on stage, I think that really, I really started to see, oh, yeah this is there are ways to read people not just on stage but these things also carry off stage and they carry into writers rooms they carry onto sets they carry uh you know into offices and everything and so i think to me there there's a part of that that i i then really tried to pay attention and look and be that observer. Like if I was ever on a set, I was, I was always more interested in being an observer and trying to see like, okay, how's the crew doing? And like, what's going on here? And I, I would often like sit with like the, the camera operators and leave my script there and sit on their, uh, on their rigs and then I could kind of see everything happening. Uh, and it, it was, and yeah, it's, it's fascinating, but it's also something where it was like, oh, I, you know, I remember working on a set where it was, you know, all of the crew were like white guys in their forties and fifties. And then there was one woman on set and she was in her twenties and what was fascinating was to see when she wasn't on set and she was around like the other women who worked on the crew, but in accounting or in like wardrobe, she would be dancing and they'd be singing and play and it'd be so much more playful. And then on set, she's, you know, she's joking with these guys, but like the energy is so different. And it was this thing of like, oh, she does not feel as comfortable here as she does there. And what's unfortunate is how do we, like this set, no one on this set is doing anything to make, to try to like make a more comfortable world for, for her or for everybody. And, and so, yeah, I think those things, it was like, oh, if I'm ever in that position, I should really like take this as a lesson to try to like make something better, but also for this person right now, 
is there anything I can do to like make sure that they do feel comfortable or that they do feel safe? Yeah. What a great superpower to have to like be able to take yourself out and notice and then actually take some kind of action. The, one of the things that I really dig about your approach to problem areas though, along these lines, though, was that if you were doing that story on that show, you would have taken the time to talk to the key grip and the gaffer who were the 40s men right. and you actually wouldn't have demonized them on the show. And I found this fascinating about the show that when you would talk to the end, that it seems to me you're aware of systems, Wyatt. Yeah. And institutions and the way that, although yes, an individual can make a difference, but it seems that you go to great lengths to not just pin the blame on the individual within the system. And in fact, to try to understand the human being in the system, because on your show, you would have talked to those people and we would have understood, well, shit, I, my day require, I'm working 16 hours. Yeah. I go home and sometimes I picture that woman. I say to myself, I should go give her, tell her something, but you know, I show up. And the assistant director's yelling at me and I got the thing and the system and, and you would come away with, all right, how do we actually address this long before everybody gets to set? Right. Right. Wouldn't you say that that was sort of a way that you approach these questions professionally? Yeah. I mean, I think with the show, so much of it was looking at systems because the, the people, everyone has a humanity and everyone sort of deserves the opportunity to engage with their own humanity and other people's humanity. And systems can often strip away that. Uh, but if I could, if, if we could make that show and have conversations where we better try to understand the sort of humanity of these things, maybe there's in that conversation there's a way to then find common ground or find even with something that i don't believe in if i'm talking to someone who does believe in that is there a way to reach them where we can have a conversation and i can get them to at least acknowledge or start to understand the that their way of thinking they're not thinking of the consequences outside of themselves but the other thing that you did that i thought was like and i really think people should go back and look at this show because the other thing that i i noticed all that for sure but like if i think about like say the episode um about the smart unit in la yeah. what you ended up doing was humanizing also, these police officers who yeah. were just in a spot sometimes, meaning not all police, you, you were able to take some police officers and go, they would like the resources to be smarter and better at this. And it was an, I, I thought like the choice, and I'm not just talking about the New York cop, like even the L, there, there was that New York cop uh, who was a person of color who was clearly like, you know, um, from a, an iconography standpoint, like, of course, we would all like him, all us liberal guys right, watching. Right. That guy was like just the way you shot him and everything. But <laughs> even like the squarest union rep cop in L.A., you presented with him going, my wife, like, said she was going to leave me. Right. And I realized I better get help. And it was like, oh, my God, I've never heard somebody say something like that. And, you know, uh, someone in that position, a, a right. union rep. How did, how did you think through wanting to do the show in that way? I think because I, there's a part of me that like, I went to high school with guys who became cops and I knew them as high school kids. And I have met, you know, and I met, and I went to high school and know people who, you know, went to prison and there's, and so it was like, Right. The same person that I would like hang out with on a Friday at school and we would play basketball together. And, you know, he's like I know like he came from South Dallas and came from like a really rough area and he's a cop now. And then this other kid who I would hang out with on Friday night 
like he's already like he's a 19 year old high school junior because he's already done time and right and yet they both are my friends and they both have a humanity and something and i feel like if they were on opposite sides of an issue it feels like oh i know the humanity of both of these people and i also know that this system of policing can strip away that sort of a humanity and it almost to me i think with the show part of what was part of what was interesting to me about the show was like everybody i believe everybody is fallible and if we can accept that we're all fallible we can also accept that we can change and we can grow and if we don't accept we're fa- we're we're fallible then you get intractable and entrenched in these you positions you calcify might as well calcify if i can't grow and get better like yeah, bones, I, right like yeah yeah and and there was something and it was one it was there was a thing that i i remember i wanted to i wanted to put in that episode about uh mental health and i remember it was like we talked about it for a long time of like let's talk about how police officers respond to people in mental health crisis but also let's talk about what mental health crises police officers are you having. Did. I mean, but you did. That was what was so revelatory in the well, and, and that there was a guy that we had talked to in Elgin, Illinois, in an earlier episode. And it was something that he told me, like we were on camera, but it wasn't for the story. And he was telling me and Elgin is like this really small police department. But he was like, yeah, I've been a cop for, you know, I think it was less than a decade. and he was like, I know, like, it was an alarming number of cops yeah, who you committed put this suicide. In the show. You, you ended up putting that in this episode. You told that story in the episode. Yeah, but it was just like, right, like, you all are, you all are depressed. And what's, and, <laughs> and, and you all need, like, we've, we've sort of sold this idea of, like, cops and policing as, like, these are tough guys and, and whatever. And it's like, but also it seems like these are people in mental health crisis. And if they're in mental health crisis, why are they not dealing with that rather than going and responding to other people? And, it, and so to me, on some level, it's like, right, if we can start having a conversation about, well, you all need to address that, then maybe that opens up another conversation of like, okay, you all need to start addressing that shit. And now maybe you start addressing that shit. Some of the people, it's not every like every GI Joe figure who wants to go in and be a cop, but maybe it's people who are starting to like, all right, I'm unpacking this stuff. I like, right. I'm an alcoholic or I'm depressed. And should I, should I, as an alcoholic be carrying a gun and but and uh, meeting up yes. with justice. No, of course. And, and you know, Tudor, uh, in a couple, uh, uh, you know, there was that one moment when not the union rep, but that other, the, the guy who um, on the day of the heat robbery, you know, his life ch- changed and he and his wife are sitting there talking to you. And, and she's like, well, they're people who professionally have to turn off their emotions. They're taught to, they're trained to. And when they come home and, you know, so they, they can't just like, turn that on when they come through the right. door. But but I had a bigger question. It's about like your mission as an artist. And and uh, I was thinking about the way other shows, I was thinking about John Oliver's show and Sam B's show. And, uh, and I was thinking about like laughs per minute. Mm-hmm. And you really intentionally gave us fewer laughs per minute on that show. And I, I have to think, I know that that was a choice because I understand how these processes work. But I mean, it also, like I remember going from season one to season two and wondering, uh, because I watched season one late and then when season two was starting, I was like, I wonder if they're going to go for just more laughs. But you kind of like doubled down in season two and made it just as many vitamins as <laughs> season one. But like you're a hilarious person. You have the capacity to do a lot of jokes per minute. If you want the sides were the jokes. They were very fast, you know, very fast bits of physical comedy or very 
fast bits of graph, even, you know, for people watching late at night high, like, you know, very fast bits of just like um, wordplay, uh, physical comedy, filmic techniques that kind of give up the gag throughout the thing, as opposed to drawing a big target around these people that you go and tell their stories and pinging them in the more traditional way of just making a funny half hour that also has a conscience. This felt like a giant conscience that, yeah, we're going to give you some laughs to get you through it. And no, I mean, and I wonder how much you were aware of the fact that it might delimit the sort of commercial possibilities of the thing because of the, the, you know, because you, you haven't announced yourself first and foremost as a public intellectual, you've announced yourself first and foremost as a comedian. And right. I, and, and so, and you, but you are a public intellectual. So it's like that, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you must've wrestled with it on some way, especially between the two seasons. Um, I don't know if we did too much. I think, you know, there was, I think for me, the thought was always let's find humor in either I can find humor in myself. I can find humor if we're doing it in the field, in the sort of scenario and situation, uh, we can yeah. find it in the logic. But when it comes to talking to other people, the idea was I like if we're going to joke that I want them to be not necessarily in on the joke, but I want them to be participatory in the joke and not the butt of the joke. And so I think, yeah, if we'd gone out there and just been like, all right, we're just going to try to, you know, uh, get people to say dumb things it 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 would have been something totally different and and i think again with the idea that this show is you know we wanted to have a conversation we wanted to have a dialogue to have a true dialogue means you have to invite everybody to the table and let them know they're welcome to the table yeah which you you really did in a in a in a real way uh, that's why all these episodes, and I, if I haven't watched all of them, I've watched a lot of them and they all have that, uh, effect, but it is also like at times because, and I wondered even if this was subconscious, if like we were living through such a troubled period of like the American, <laughs> like it, we were just living through, you know, it was post Trump, your show was on while Trump was president. Yeah. And so like, if that somehow informed your your a desire in you to really highlight these issues as opposed to and to really just sort of like dive into trying to understand why so many of us found ourselves at odds with one another as opposed to making a really funny half hour that um that might make us think it really was right. like leading with the. I mean, you really led with the thinking. You know what I mean? Well, I think I, I think on some level, you know, in approaching this idea, the idea was all of this stuff is so much more local than it is national, and when we talk about change, so often there are things that people will get angry and they're like why isn't the president doing this? And it's like, well, you're talking actually about like your public school. And that's, that's a, that's a complaint that you could talk to somebody who lives three blocks away. And I think in localizing things for me, it felt like, well, the more local we have these conversations, the more you then start to see, oh, that's a person I've seen at the grocery store. That's a person who goes to such and such restaurant all the time. And, and so in that way, or that's that business owner. And I don't know, I think in trying to kind of make things smaller, there's an aspect of that that's like, well, we all have to live, you know, you live in New York, you live in an apartment building. It's like, 
yeah, I can I can hate the person who lives above me because they're stomping all the time. But we got to figure out a way to do this because I'm not moving and they're not moving. And whether that's like, all right, I, you know, we got to go to the super and talk to them about getting you some carpet or doing doing something. It's like, right, we got to figure this out here versus the idea of like, I feel like it's the it's 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 that versus if I'm a person who's living below a person who's stomping me then just yelling out my window about the you know the hardwood flooring industry you know that all makes total sense to me Is there a balance in you or does it go back and forth between wanting to make your audience think and wanting to make your audience laugh? Like they're both really valid things to contribute to the world. Right. They're both really useful too. Like there's nothing more useful than a uh, a big laugh. And even in that episode, yeah. I think it was that episode. Um, uh, no, it might've been the ATM episode which i also love too the oh, i love that episode about because i never knew about that atm deserts like right banking deserts banking that desert, meant yeah. that uh i thought a lot before that about the um fee structure of atms for people who are like you know when you hammer home the five dollar thing for somebody who's i mean that's another episode i highly recommend people go back to this banking deserts but in 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 one of them, you did that funny little runner about you know UNC basketball. Like you never played for UNC, right? Yeah. Again, but like, but how do you decide what when you when you like because uh, these things require a commitment of a lot of time. So how do you decide when you want to go laughs first, and how do you decide when you want to go sort of like deep uh, philosophical or intellectual impact uh, right uh, first? I think on some level it's. How how well do I understand this? And there's if I'm struggling to understand it, then I feel like I'm probably going to struggle to explain it. Yeah. And so then that I, I feel like that's where it starts. And then it's all right. How how silly can I make this to at least kind of like counterbalance how wonky it might be sure and then even yes. with wonky i don't want to get overly wonky and i don't know i think everything everything at its core is ostensibly a yes or no question and so i, I think at its core it's like all right yeah do you want uh there are there are such things as banking deserts that are i uh, you know that are impacting people's lives in a negative way does that make sense yes or no no okay well why do these things happen well because these industries are preying on those uh, does yes. that make sense yes or no <laughs> and like or is is this what's happening yes or no and so i think because of that it's it always I think on some level for me is like, all right, can you get it down to those yes or no's that are just that then just sort of clarify it? And then, yeah, what's the silliest aspect of it? What's the dumbest or the goofiest thing? And and then, yeah, uh, also, can I let people know that I went to the University of North Carolina in the hopes that someday the college will ask me to sit courtside at a game? And, you know, you did more than one episode on, on the gun problem. So I'm sure that everything that's going on, I watched those too. And yeah, those were, uh, you know, no, that's, but that's, it's funny because I feel like that I I've actually been kind of thinking about that. Uh, one of those episodes recently was just the idea of like, you know, we, we talk about guns and part of, and, and I think part of how I initially sold the show was I'd had I was I was taking these photos on this when I was on subway platforms of just movie posters that had guns in the movie poster over actors and just how like ridiculous it was where I think it was like one of the born movies where 
you had like two Oscar nominated actors who didn't even make the poster for the movie. And the image was just this giant image of like Matt Damon holding a gun. And what is it, what does it say about what we prioritize? You, you earlier we were talking about when we were talking about policing and you'd said something about how in one of those episodes, this, this wife of a police officer says like they're trained to turn off their emotions and we never have the conversation of like, well, what if we didn't train them that way? That's what if- fully implied though. That's fully implied. That's what was so wonderful about that moment is the show asks that question. Yeah. Like by leaving that in there, that was a huge takeaway for me was like, huh, they're trained. She actually said there, and the guy just sat there, Yeah. you know, um, and he didn't say like, well, no, I have it. He was just like, you know, so. Yeah. But I just, I, but I think about those things in, in a similar way of like, well, what if we tried to make the idea of public safety something that emotion was involved in and that sensitivity was involved in? Or what if we thought about selling movies where we said, oh, you know what? Alicia Vikander is a great actor. We should highlight her and her work and put her more front and center on this story because this story, the dynamic is about these actors and not this hand and this gun. And and what happens when we shift our priorities to say like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe selling a movie isn't about selelling a gun and, and yeah that, but you know look you did an ep- you did episodes uh uh you know about unionizing fast food workers and all this stuff and I loved your thing about the age statistics in that episode and like yeah. who actually works and and I love the point you made about uh if it is teenagers even though you show only like whatever I can't remember but like something like 25 percent are actually yeah. young and it's a but you even made this point of but that's their first work experience and yeah. shouldn't they have a bit but you have to understand because of the way you depict this stuff, incentive structures. And so the people making that poster, they're so incentivized for that poster to get people into the movie theater. Right. That, that it, it, we would have to have a cultural, uh, an entire societal upheaval, which I'm, I'm not saying we should. I'm saying <laughs> in order for that poster to be different. Right. The whole incentive structure would have to shift because the difference between being a vice president of marketing and a senior vice president of marketing is the difference between living in Woodland Hills and Encino. I don't really know what that difference is, but you know what I'm saying? No, 100%. And and so if you can get to the SVP by putting the gun, no, seriously, you're going to do it, right? Well, and it's, but it's that thing I, 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 one of my favorite movies when I was younger was Hollywood Shuffle. And there's a great moment in that movie where Robert Townsend's character is this struggling actor and he gets offered this part that he feels like I I couldn't look my grandmother in the eyes if I do this part. And there's another guy sitting next to him who's like, I wouldn't do that part. And then like for all of his thing, he's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to stand on principle. I can't take this part. I know it'll mean a lot, but I can't do it. And the guy sitting next to him is like, I'll do it. And, and that's, and that's what's so like, that's what's so unfortunate and sad is that, yeah, you could have someone who says, all right, we're going to be the, the studio. That's not gonna, we're not going to sell movies in this way, or we're going to be the gun company. That's going to actually like, put like, you know, fingerprint scanners on guns or do whatever else. And it's like, sure, you can do that. But that person over there is still more than happy to sell people sugar. I think I only told this once on the podcast, but I will. I'm sorry to podcast listeners. I'm going to you're going to have to drink now because I am going to mention my first movie rounders. But because the very first meeting Dave and I ever had on Rounders. So there's not a one gun in that movie and intentionally not for some moral reason. We just were like, let's make a crime film where there's not one gun. Yeah. Let's make a crime film where there's not one gun in the whole film. And the very first meeting we had with some independent producer who'd read the script and he's like, I love this fucking thing. 
the first two acts are great, but the third act, I mean, it's got to become a fucking bloodbath. <laughs> he's like, where are the? He's like, where are the weapons? I mean, this guy would. And I remember we sat there. And we went, well, we thought it would be kind of cool to do a crime movie where you just never see a gun. And the guy just looked at us like we were fucking lunatics. And he was like, well, this was a nice meeting, fellas, you know, and, <laughs> and like because the business is so it's just very hard to make any kind of there is no there is no gun in that movie. And, and it was I mean, our next movie, not going guys had just nothing but guns. It's not, not a more I can't claim the high moral ground, no. but, but but that film, there's no guns on purpose. And it was remarked upon by people negatively when we were trying to get it made. You right. know what I mean? The audience yeah. never noticed, by the way. No, not one audience member has ever been like, oh, that would have been either better or worse if there were, you know, right. no one's ever mentioned it because the reality of that world was there's just no guns in it. Right. Okay. There's violence, but there's no guns in it. Yeah. And, 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 but the business didn't like that. You know what I mean? The business would have preferred there to be guns. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that's, it's, it's that weird. It's that sort of weird push and pull that, I feel like, especially in the entertainment business, we're always being asked to like sort of stand, like stand between and hold both of those, you know, both those things where it's like, oh, well, okay, you could take this job or you could write this thing or you could make this thing and you may not fully agree with it, but uh it's what's gonna sell and um, um, yeah you're right man a movie i've never mentioned on here not my movie at all uh but spike lee's movie uh i don't know if you ever saw bamboozled yeah yeah spike it's put he's putting this if you haven't i'll just say if you haven't seen this movie it's worth seeing yeah uh in the same way that hollywood truffle is because it's on a lot of the stuff that we're yeah but it's but it is that there is that strange aspect of like well it's you know it's show business and it's how much of it is business and how much of it is show. And that kind of like, yes. that, I mean, that push it's, it's complicated though. Right. If you were going to do it as an episode, I mean, I, many of my favorite movies have guns like Sidney Lumet's movies have guns in them and the Godfather has guns in them. And I wouldn't like those movies as much if they didn't, it's a tough question about what the influence is on. Yeah. You know. But it's also, I think there's something uh, there's something that also feels creatively interesting. Like you talked about the idea of making rounders and saying, we're not going to have any guns. So then creatively, I feel like it challenges you in a totally different way. And there's something about that aspect of like, whether it's filmmaking or television, I think about, I remember years ago watching something where they were talking about the X-Files and how, a lot of the suspense that they evoked in the show was built more on really tight shots, really dark shots. Like they didn't show you things. They just drew it out of you in these different ways. And I think some of that was because of standards on the network of what they could show. And I think some of that was just like, oh, creatively, this is now pushing us to think differently about how we shoot this because we can't shoot it like a movie. We can't show, a, you know, the fucking arm cut, Alien, like, yeah, right, yeah, hanging off right. or whatever. And it's like, oh, but we can give it to you in reactions and we can do all of that. And that, to me, that idea of like, oh yeah, what happens when not not like your hand is tied behind your back, but if you if you if you don't have this, then what what do you have? Yeah, REM on on losing my religion on that album that losing my religion. Like REM had this rule about the number of acoustic instruments in each track. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they always said the reason that album was like so great was because they had limited what tools they could use in the studio, and it forced them to come up. Just exactly what you're saying, it forced them to come up with a different kind of creativity in a, yeah. in a way. Do you find in in making things, I don't know, I always feel like if you make something, uh, especially if it's a show uh, and a movie too, your budget, you're always going to be like, oh, I, I wish I had X number. And you'll always get like 10% under X. And, and then you make it. And sometimes being 10% under X 
actually winds up like like because you're having to like figure some shit out like that you're like you know what we figured something out that we wouldn't have figured out otherwise or are you like no just give me X well what, what you need to understand why it is that the showtime executives listen to this podcast sure. okay so 10 percent so over what X. you need to know is that i really need it's it's never we're gonna just use exactly the amount we need at at every turn and if there was more that too would be an, incredible and we would put it we would put it to great use. Do you yes. know what I'm saying? Every <laughs> extra dollar. You wouldn't believe what you'd see on the screen. Uh, <laughs> but privately, some other time, we can. Uh, it's possible I would agree with you. Uh, I, and, I, if, and I say that, and I don't 100% agree as someone who, in most of my projects, goes over budget. Uh, you know, but not if Showtime execs, if you're listening, not that much over budget. Just no, not tiny. over budget in a way that it's not completely appropriate and called for. I mean, that's, yeah, that's no. no, I think that's clear. And it's uh, all everything you'll see on the screen, even Pizza Friday. Hey, so man, uh, you're so great to talk to. I I had basically didn't ask you anything I wanted to ask you. So let's do, I want to do a part two because your story of a lot of people who listen to the show, what I'm really glad is that people listening could like hear you and the way that you think about the world. Um, but I would love to do um, a, a convo with you. Maybe we could do it in a month or two, like a part two where we go back because your story is one that I think people could really take a lot of inspiration from like the way you got to be at SNL, what happened to you, how you then were able to move forward because as an outsider, you did something kind of impossible. And I would love to like you. unpack your mental process through it. Meaning people can know, and you know, you were an in, you got an internship at SNL and like were able to kind of like move from there. But, but I think the sort of mental approach to how to think about, those things is useful for people. So if yeah. you have time, I'd, I'd love to be able to, to do this again. No, I'd love to. Brian, it's been amazing talking to you. And I, it's, I, you know, we started this by saying that uh, we, our paths haven't crossed and I'm glad they crossed uh, today. But I, yeah, it's, I feel like if they'd crossed sooner, I would have loved to have had lovely conversations with you <laughs> at some, uh, at some party, Hollywood party. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. A uh, hundred, uh, ask Patrick for my uh, digits and just text me, man. And we'll, we'll go get a coffee or something like that. All right. Just say um, it on the podcast, share them, share them right now with oh, all. Oh, that's a good idea. You know what? Yeah. So yeah, people, if you, and especially like, if you have a pitch for me, I mean, definitely, you know what I mean? <laughs> like if there's an idea that you want to hit me with, like definitely these numbers I'm going to give you, um, <laughs> So uh, are you, where are you on social media? Like if someone wants to follow you, who's listening to this, are you on Instagram or uh, the Twitter or anything? Not really. I was on Twitter and Instagram, but I, I don't particularly enjoy them. And so I have uh, at the moment, and I hope for the long haul, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm yeah. quitting those unless, yeah, I feel like I was forced on for various job things and, yeah, I, I I do not I I don't like how they make me feel. So uh, I've way dialed back Twitter. I used to be super active, and I'm I'm barely on Twitter, and it makes me feel so much better. Uh, and Instagram doesn't bother me. I can do Instagram in a very kind of light and easy way if I feel like posting something. But Twitter got very. I was super active, and it's much better. Life's better kind of without it. Yeah. Well, and I I I feel like I was never a big. Like I, I was never really big on Twitter, but if something bothered me, especially once I wasn't like between the daily show and problem areas, if there was something that was happening in real time where I couldn't necessarily get up on stage, I, there was a little bit of like the drug of, yes. Oh, when you're on television and you can talk about these things, that's a huge audience that you're getting to vent to. And Twitter, I would, write like strings of tweets that would be like writing a headline for the daily show or then writing something for problem areas. And at some point I was like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta stop this. Cause, and then I would do it on Instagram a little bit too. And when I would do it on Instagram, I would take like 
I I did it very recently before I shut it all down, where it was just like, oh, I'm taking video clips and I'm doing like I've spent my entire day writing a fucking headline and just that like I like I don't like it's it's great like it's a great creative outlet but like what like no what, what yeah. am I getting out of this I mean maybe catharsis I just morning pages help a lot just do your morning pages you know just journal but oh, journaling that's a, is that's what I do that really is, I've never journaled I've, I, I should I should try first thing in the morning three longhand pages really uncensored like just three longhand uncensored pages. It like unlocks your, all your subconscious. Oh yeah. It's great. It's very oh, freeing. Wow. Yeah. It's an amazingly freeing thing. All right, man. Thank you for doing this. Um, uh, people look for whatever his next venture is. I asked him yeah. and he's like, I'm not sure yet. I have a he's, website. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Go to the website. That'll keep you informed if he's performing and stuff like that. Um, if there's anything crucial, you can email me at the show email, the moment, Uh, and, uh, I'll see you next time, everybody. 